Hey everyone, and welcome back to Practically Zero Waste, a podcast for making zero waste living as practical as possible. I'm your host, Elspeth Callahan, and this week I had the pleasure of chatting with Elizabeth Knight and John Wackman, co-authors of The Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Changing Our Throwaway Culture, which came out in October of 2020 and is available everywhere. In this conversation, we get into the how-to and behind the scenes of running your very own repair cafe, but we also talk about how a repair cafe goes beyond just repairing things. It can repair relationships, communities, the environment, and society. When we place value on the objects, the stories, the people, and the places around us, we not only should preserve, uphold, and protect, but we want to all the more as well. You're going to love John and Elizabeth, their banter, the energy and warmth they bring to this movement. It's all so inspiring. And all the information to start something just like this in your own community is right here in their book. So let's dive into this conversation and begin our own part in the repair revolution. Let's go. Can you each tell me a bit about yourselves and what life was like before connecting with the repair cafe movement? Okay, so... Before connecting with the Repair Cafe, I had a a corporate background in marketing, communications, and special events. And then when I left that, I was in the tea business for a number of years. I wrote books about tea, and I was the tea sommelier for the St. Regis Hotel in New York City. The way I got connected with the Repair Cafe movement was I had moved to a small, just outside a small village in Orange County, New York, which is about 60 miles north of New York City. And the first spring that I saw the bulk trash pickup and saw the things that had been kicked to the curb in the village, I was stunned Mm. by the volume and the quality. And I contacted the village department of public works and said, how much stuff do you pick up and where does it go? And what does it cost to get it there? And when I found out the answers, I thought there has to be a better way to do this. So I was connecting with a a local artist group that, like to work with recycled materials and they were doing makers events with kids in school and we were trying to find support financial and municipal support for having a maker space and other kinds of recycling events that turned out to be unsuccessful so i had read an article in a local sustainable magazine about a repair cafe in a nearby county and thought that's an interesting idea And I took a lamp and went to visit it and thought, this is where I can start. I'll find out if I'm the only nut job in town Mm -hmm. who cares about throwing out things that are still of use. So that's how I got started. Wow. Awesome. Nut job. You don't say. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Actually, Elizabeth and I first met working for public education about solar energy. And at the time, I was the program manager for something in New York State called Solarize Hudson Valley. And the idea was basically to, as I say, inform the public, answer the questions that everyone has about solar energy and whether it would work for them. And Elizabeth and her husband, Roger, they basically stepped up to host the campaign in their town of Warwick, New York. So that was the first place that we connected. But really, at that time, Elizabeth didn't know anything about Repair Cafe. I first read about it in the New York Times in 2012. And at that time, this was an article that was about this phenomenon that was in Europe only. There were none in the USA. Mm -hmm. But I thought, oh, what a cool idea. I really ought to stick that in my back pocket figuratively and maybe, you know, maybe sometime soon work on that. Well, as it happened, 
six or so months after that, I had the opportunity to move up to the Hudson Valley from New York. And I thought, okay, here's the time, here's the place, or at least I thought so. So I started talking to people about the idea, you know, and, you know, what would be involved and, you know, where do we find this, the skills and all of that. And I tell you, everyone just said, oh, that is such a great idea. You really ought to do it here. So, <laughs> uh, so we started ours in the spring of uh, 2013. And we were the fourth in the USA. The first one was in Silicon Valley. Big surprise, right? Yeah. The second, the second one is a surprise. It was in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, which okay. is, you know, Western Massachusetts. It's a very depressed part of the state. You know, you would not expect it there. Third one was back to the West Coast in Pasadena. And then here we are in the Hudson Valley of New York. And I'll tell you this, that a lot of people have asked, why do you think the Hudson Valley has been such a fertile territory for the repair movement? Because we now have 40, you know, in the Hudson Valley and Catskills and so forth. And I have to say that I believe the answer is the Hudson River itself and the fight for the Hudson River. What they what they call the embattled Hudson River, because the Hudson really is really the cradle of the modern environmental movement, and Pete Seeger uh, gets a lot of credit for that. And now I'm moved to ask Elspeth, do you know the name Pete Seeger? Do you know about him and his legacy? No, and I don't know about the battle for the Hudson River and and all that you just said. Can you maybe give us a quick background on on what's happening there and why that's so tied to the desire to fix things, maybe for the sake of the planet? The Battle for the Hudson River goes all the way back to the turn of the last century, so we're talking 1900, and it was the Palisades. Now, the Palisades are these beautiful metamorphic cliffs that are just north of New York City on the Hudson River. They are gorgeous, they are a treasure, and they were being dynamited Hmm. for building stone and and that was simply to say the the effort to stop that destruction of the palisades is really where it began but then in the in the 60s we had pete seeger pete seeger is a singer songwriter in in the history of folk music he is a giant so he wrote the songs turn 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 he was the patron saint of environmentalism Hmm. in the hudson valley And I think also a lot of people moved to the Hudson Valley from New York City and the the five boroughs that make up the city because they want a life that's more attuned to nature. They want the great outdoors. Mm -hmm. And like John said, many of them, when they arrive, think it looks like an Eden, but it also needs our help. So that's evolved over the years. Well, you know, the Hudson River, like virtually every American river, uh, was a sewer. Because there's no more convenient way to get away, to get rid of anything you don't want than to dump it in the river, right? This is true. And so the Hudson River was really an open sewer. And and, and it really did not seem, it seemed far-fetched to almost everyone that somehow that could get turned around. And the Hudson River and the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland, those were two examples that we write about in the book, which talk about environmental repair, and in this case specifically, the repair of our waterways. And that that. includes you, Elspeth, that includes the Great Lakes. Oh, right, up in Canada. Well, the, the, the lakes that we share. I love that perspective of environmental repair, like undoing the damage that a lot of ongoing relationship with humanity has uh, done to 
the planet. Um, I love that there's work being done not just to fix the things that we make as humans, but to fix uh, the <laughs> problems that we've oh, yeah. caused um, to oh, the yeah. environment. And, I, you know, one of the things that we always, Elizabeth and I always need to make sure that we do our best to get across is that, sure, the repair movement is about fixing our stuff, everything from our toasters to our sweaters to our computers. But it is so much bigger than that. And, you know, what our embrace for this topic includes environmental repair. It includes social repair. Uh, so, for example, we write re about reparations as, as a way of approaching social repair. Yeah. It's all of these words that start with R-E. I think we'll get to those in a minute when we're uh, talking more about the, the book that was just launched. Do you have a quote from George Washington that feels significant for your, your movement? Um, can you tell us what that is and why it matters? Well, the quote is, let us raise a standard to which the wise and honest can repair. George Washington is said to have spoken those words during the Constitutional Convention at Philadelphia in 1787. So now they are handed down to us as useful guidance, and Washington's words are in fact printed inside of every U.S. passport. Hmm. So now it's a right; it's a old-fashioned way of using the word repair. Let us raise the standard to which the wise and honest can repair. But we embrace it, and in in a way, it's really become our motto. So the word repair here means to take refuge or to find security. Oh and yes. A standard can refer either to a principle or to a military flag, yeah. right? And, mm -hmm. and General George Washington may have meant to invoke both meanings, which mm -hmm. is fine. You know, we repairers, we do. We raise a flag to the virtues of wisdom and honesty. And so we feel that wisdom and honesty are what we see people experience at a repair cafe, uh, you know, wisdom is knowledge gained from experience. And a lot of people bring experience to the rare, you know, to their fixing. And honesty speaks to the nature of our relationships and to treating each other with respect and, you know, as we would wish to be treated. Mm -hmm. So these are all things which are very much part of the ethos of the repair movement. I love when the very perhaps tangible ways of taking action, like fixing a sweater can be tied to the greater morals of our mission, which are how it goes beyond just these surface level things like reducing our packaging and fixing um, our appliances when they kind of start to wear out. And instead, it's it's greater than that. It's taking care of relationships. It's taking care of the environment that's around you. It's it's repairing so many things um, like broken social justice systems and yeah. and everything. Like, ah, that's so good how it's it's all connected, people. These these links might yeah, feel right. like yeah, like all of these things might seem like different entities and people say, oh, don't make it political. It's not political. It's just being a good person. So I love I love how it's all connected. Thank you. And if I may say one more thing about this, mm -hmm. and that is we, we have really found, and we love to underscore, that community repair projects do not self-select for any political point of view. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone has broken stuff, and that's our commonality. And so sitting down with a neighborhood to troubleshoot what's wrong with your stuff will help you know, helps to bridge a partisan, partisan divide or, or any other divide that you know, that might separate you in another setting. I want to say when I was first starting my repair cafe, I had 
gotten the support of, um, I'm, I'm part of a local sustainability group called uh, Sustainable Warwick, and we were looking for ways to reduce our carbon footprint, and I had decided that the repair cafe would be the way, as I said, to see if I could get any more traction to having a better way to take care of the things in our town instead of sending them 72 miles away to a landfill in another state. Mm -hmm. And I remember calling John and saying, uh, we were having a conversation about what was, I had not yet actually opened the repair cafe. And I remember John saying to me, you think you're going to keep things out of the landfill and you will, but what you don't yet know is you're building community. And I, ha I have to say, at the very first repair cafe, you could see that in front of your face. That is the there, coolest thing. Yeah. There's one of the trends in repair, the repair movement now, and in the the sense of taking care of the things that we own is called visible mending. Oh. It's when the patch is meant to be celebrated. It's a way, an opportunity for you to be a creative solution, to come up with a creative solution to the thing you're going to make, not to make it invisible. And I can tell you stories later of there is visible mending of people, not just the thing, but what the thing meant to them and what it now means to the person who helped make the repair. You can see it being like the threads of community, literally being sometimes woven right in front of your face. You guys, this is too good. I love it so much. <laughs> This is what we're all about. I love it. <laughs> it's true, Elspeth. We are. We get very excited to talking about this, which is, you know, why why we wrote the book because yeah, we really, you know, our purpose was to encourage and even inspire people to start a repair event or initiative of any kind. You don't have to call it a repair cafe. You can call it whatever the heck you want. But really, every town ought to have one, just the way that every town used to have repair shops and mm -hmm. no longer do. Okay, so let's get into the book a little bit. We talk a lot about the good old days and how things used to be built to last and how nowadays there's something called planned obsolescence. Can you kind of um, elaborate on what that is? Well, planned obsolescence is a term that is pretty widely known, I think. Uh, it's one of those think that has been uh, a, a challenge challenging to establish through fact basically though a, mm. a planned obsolescence is the idea that things should not be made to last as long as they could as long as they used to because the economy depends on people buying new things more often more often than they need to and there's a, right along with planned obsolescence, there's a phenomenon known as perceived obsolescence. And, and that really ties to the power of marketing and the seductive nature of fashion and fast fashion. And that convinces us that we are not as, as, as good as we could be if we owned something just a little bit newer uh, and a little bit different. So in the post-war era, corporations discovered that if they turned out a new model every year, then they could convince people that, oh, I better get the new one. I'm not going to be satisfied with the old one any longer. Mm -hmm. And so this whole idea led up to, in the 1950s in the U.S., President Eisenhower had a chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, and get this, this is what he said, the American economy's ultimate purpose is to produce more consumer goods. 
Mm -hmm. Think about that. That the purpose of our economy is to produce more consumer goods. And so what we had is a whole set of elements that would become known as planned obsolescence, or the other term was death dating. And they all came together in the 1950s. Products were no longer made to last the way they used to be. Appliances are really the chief example. So refrigerators, dishwashers, and clothing machines. <laughs> and those used to last 30 years. Okay. And now, most the average lifetime of a washing machine is about eight years. And almost every machine needs a repair call within the first three years. Oh, man. Think about it. This is not because we we have somehow gotten stupider. It's not because we don't know, (laughs) we no longer know how to make things that last. No, no, no. It is because the market, the consumer market is driven by buying new on a much more frequent basis than ought to be. It's scary. It's scary to think. And we see that um, probably the planned obsolescence with things like electronics. Not everybody has maybe encountered um, having to purchase a new uh, fridge or stove or something like that or washing machine. They maybe have it wear out and they're wondering why it wore out so quickly. But more frequently, we're constantly replacing electronics for the new model or because your screen broke on your phone and it is cheaper to give you a whole new phone than it is to repair the screen. Yeah. Yeah. They call it the mountain of e-waste. It's hard because, again, we're kind of, we're little people in a system that's broken and doesn't allow for us to purchase an electronic that's meant to last or um, ones that... You know, your battery dies. I think Apple is a pretty terrible company for that, especially. But something internal in an iPhone breaks. It can't be taken apart to be fixed um, yeah. in, on purpose. Yeah, it just seems evil. Yeah. And this and this is what we're referring to now as the right to repair movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very strong. There is legislation uh, that is working its way through um, 25 states. Uh, and it basically says that if you can't fix it, you don't own it. The good news here that the United States Copyright Office and Fair Trade Commission has staunchly stood behind the right to repair. Nonetheless, you know, it's turned up in a lot of court cases, but now is working its way through the legislative process because everyone agrees that that's the way to handle this. It's been in court cases? What do you mean? Like the right to repair has come all the way to like a court case? Cases of consumers versus corporations. Okay. Tell me about your book. Is it, it's called The Repair Revolution. Yes. The Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Transforming Our Throwaway Culture. Amazing. So how did that go from maybe how many years were you running the um, Repair Cafe before it came time for a book to come out? Well, I've been running Repair Cafe about four years, John Longer, and and I came into the book after John did. So he'll have to tell you that story. (laughs) Our Repair Cafe in in my part of the Hudson Valley, which is New Paltz and Kingston, uh, started in 2013. We're really eight years into it now. About halfway through that, I was my skill set is woodworking, and uh, so when I go to a, uh, somebody's repair cafe, then I bring my tools and I sit down and I do wood repairs. Wow. And I was in Beacon, New York, and I've been working along, and a woman came over and sat down and she said, 
They tell me you're the guy I should talk to. I've been here a while. I brought some stuff to be fixed. I think this is great. And I think there's a book in this. Hmm. So it turns out she's a literary agent. So after a few months, we kind of got talking seriously about it. And the first step is to write a proposal. So a, a book proposal is generally 40 to 50 pages long, involves a whole lot of research. Uh, she was very encouraging. And about halfway through that, I <laughs> called Elizabeth and I, I said, Elizabeth, I have been reading the reports that you write to your volunteers after each of your events and the way that you describe what people bring and the way they attend to it and the feelings of gratitude that, that come from that, all of your descriptions really speak so much to the spirit of this. And I said, would you help me write this book, please? Mm. <laughs> and the reason that I was writing the reports was because I had been an account manager for a marketing communication firm. And I was very sensitive to the fact that I wouldn't be able to open the door to the senior center in, at the Warwick Town Complex and have people helping other people if they didn't volunteer their time and their skills. And I wanted them to know how much it was appreciated. And the thing that was interesting to me was after I would send up these reports, I knew that people didn't have the overview. If you're, if you're very busy gluing the legs back on a wooden chair or, or sewing the unicorn's horn back on the stuffed toy, <laughs> or um, all of those things are real or, or an enormous <laughs> amount of cat fur out of a vacuum cleaner, you're pretty absorbed in your task. <laughs> so they didn't get the big overview. How many people came to the repair cafe yeah. average 75 to 80 where did they come from 13 to 19 different towns how did they hear about it what did they bring what were we able to fix but it was the the human interest stories yeah. and i would get emails back from the coaches saying oh but you missed the the such and such and such and such and mm -hmm. next time you need to stand next to me when i teach that kid how to pump up the bicycle tire so yeah, the stories awesome. would go back and forth and it just got a lot richer and then i would also send an edited version of it to to our sponsor and to the town supervisor and his clerk and to the village mayor because all of them had been supportive of the repair cafe mm -hmm. and then I would send it to the local newspapers and sometimes they'd run an edited version of it sometimes they'd run the whole thing but the thing that was so interesting to me was it was fine to have the statistics about as I said, how many people, where did they, what did they bring? And, but what people really enjoyed was the quirky descriptions of what's wrong with it. Like uh, I'm reading the job tickets and one of them was horse with busted butt. <laughs> or what's wrong with the phone? Two kittens chewed wire. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Uh, yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, Elizabeth is a wonderful storyteller, and and just you know, you you really just have an, an innate talent as a reporter, and so you collected the kinds of stories that I would never have picked up on, honestly, and cannot overstate you know, how important everything you brought to the book is. When John and I sat down and really began to talk about, well, who's going to write what chapter, who has the more experience, who's been this part of this movement longer, one of the things that we talked about was I said, we need to make sure this is not a Hudson Valley-centric story because right. the story is much bigger. So we came up with a volunteer questionnaire. I had also worked with Ray Fow, who is the instigator of about 30 repair cafes in Massachusetts <laughs> and his 16 year old grandson 
as a high school junior started one in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Wow. Uh, Ray helped helped me go over the you know what the questions that I hadn't thought to ask, and we broadcast it. My husband, who's the IT guy, sent it out to every repair cafe, fix it clinic, pop up repair event that we could find online or that someone wow. else told us about. Wow. So we we not only have the stories that. I personally collected, we've got the stories that others asked their volunteers and wrote to us about. So it was a much bigger story than I think either John or I knew when we started. Yes, and that's exactly right. We wanted to cast as wide a net as possible. We wanted to bring in as many voices and experiences as we could. We wanted this book not so much to be our book um, as, as two authors, but as, you know, the, the entire you know, community of repairers and fixers across the land. And and I will say also, Elspeth, that there are a lot of Canadian repair cafes that mm-hmm. we are in constant touch with, and they are very much a part of this. The uh, one in Toronto actually contributed to the how do I get one of these in my town chapter with how they actually come up with job titles and, and what's required for each, for each of the volunteers. It was wow. immensely helpful. Wow. That's, that's a good example, Elspeth. We, we do, in the book, we have a whole chapter uh, that's quite detailed, and it's called How Do I Get One of These in My Town? We titled it that exactly because people would come up to me. I know they came up to Elizabeth as well, yes. and we'd say, wow. This is so cool. How do I get one of these in my town? <laughs> Could you bring your people to, to our library on, on Saturday? And the answer is always, I'm really glad you think this is great because it is. And you've seen how much fun it is and how dedicated people are. But no, it needs to be a grassroots movement for what your town needs because no two organizations or towns are the same. Wow. Well, yes. And, and now... Elspeth, here is the core concept, right? And when people say, what is a repair cafe? Our answer is, it's a free community meeting place to bring a beloved but broken item to be repaired by an expert who is also your neighbor. Hmm. Well, that is the core dynamic, is that the people who have these skills are your neighbors. Yeah. And it's also to be repaired with the help of these fixperts, it's not a drop-off service. You, you don't take your kid to soccer practice and drop off the, the wonky lamp. We need you to be there, number one, because there may be decisions that have to be made about this can be fixed, but we need to do it that way. But the other point of this is that you're learning something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As yes. one of the coaches said, I often ask people to hold the pieces as we're taking it apart or to lend a hand to steady it because then they're picking up something about how to diagnose a problem, uh, what kind of screwdriver you use for this, or if it can't be fixed, they've been part of the process and they understand why and what the options are now. Amazing. Yes, that's yeah. a very important point. I, I love that. I love the, the human aspect all along throughout your book where you're telling the people stories of repairing and building community. But then there is a place just like that that's just called Bike in Peterborough. And um, it's a community-run bike shop. And they do something very similar where you have to book an appointment to fix your bike. And the uh-huh. volunteers are there fixing bikes, but they're not doing the work for you. They're teaching you how to repair your bike. Um, yes, and that is very much our emphasis. And Elizabeth, thank you for uh, for emphasizing that. <laughs> uh, 
and people, you know, every item that people bring has meaning to them. Mm-hmm. Either they, you know, they care about or is useful to them. And our purpose is to extend the life of those items. As one of our repair coaches, Kathy Linton, she's a jewelry repair person who had a, a jewelry her own jewelry shop on the main street in the village and she said everything that comes in here has a life and a story and that we are fixers of meaningful things oh i love that story about your item well that's really where the repair begins you know yes, when exactly. you start doing what it's supposed to be doing <laughs> uh, that's where and and the conversation that I have when I bring my item to a repair cafe and I sit down across the table from someone who is going to give it their full attention. That conversation is not beside the point. It is the point. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. <laughs> and that's very true. And one of one of the examples that I love, there's a man named Jonathan Ment who volunteers his carpentry skills at Transition Cat Skills, but he's also good with the needle and thread. When he was a kid, he complained about the way his mother was sewing his uh, Boy Scout Cub Scout patches on his shirt, and she said, "Then you do it." Grandmother <laughs> to learn how to sew. And long story short, he and his grandmother at one point made a pillow that had a uh, curious George monkey face on it. And Jonathan brought it to a repair cafe and took a break from doing his uh, carpentry repairs, and called some of the sewing team over and said. You know, I don't know how to mend the, the worn fabric, and I don't know what to do about the stuffing. And, you know, can this even be repaired? And the seamstress and another volunteer took a really hard look at the beloved pillow, and they said, it's a folk art. Don't mend it. Frame it. So he was like, what So now this is an interesting point. You know, you could say, well, things are brought to the, to a repair cafe or a fix-it clinic or a repair hub or a repair lab. Or, you know, there's nothing proprietary about getting a group of people together in a town to fix stuff. You can mm-hmm. call it whatever you want. And, and our book in, embraces all of those iterations. Uh, when somebody brings an item, you could say, well, either it gets fixed or it doesn't, right? But in fact, we have a very important in-between category, and we call it partially repaired. But what it means is that, okay, your item wasn't fixed on that day, but you learned something about it. You have an understanding of what makes it work. Mm -hmm. You might need a part, and that exact part has been identified for you so you can go and get it. And the fact is, is that in many cases, the best that we can do is to offer advice mm-hmm. and you know give some wisdom about how you can care for your things in the future so it's really we are wanting to to educate communicate about how we can take better care of the things in our lives i love that i think that preventative repairs <laughs> or mm-hmm. pre- preventative measures i think is is a great skill to learn as well like how to extend the life of your clothing how to take better care of the stuff that you own so that it doesn't need to be repaired as much and doesn't look mm-hmm. so ratty at the end <laughs> like yeah. um oftentimes what happens is when i go back and read the job tickets to write the report Oftentimes, something isn't even broken. Mm. Um, somebody found out uh, he had one, wound up his pendulum clock the wrong way. Oh, or okay. also, all the lamp needed was a new light bulb. Mm-hmm. Or someone didn't know how to thread the sewing machine. We've had people actually bring in a machine and sit next to the coat. Yeah. Didn't know how to thread it. 
Walk me through a repair cafe that you're familiar with. What does it look like when you arrive with something to repair? When a person arrives at a repair cafe, the, they step up to the welcome table, right? That makes sense. And, mm-hmm. and the person there will uh, say, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Let's take a look at what you've brought. But first, I want you to please read through our house rules. And then I'm going to ask you to sign in. And when you sign in, you are saying that, yes, you have read and you agree to the house rules. And here they are, very basically. If you offer items for repair, you do so at your own risk. We invite you to watch and learn. Note that Repair Cafe is not a drop-off service. Secondly, the persons making repairs offer no guarantee and may only be able to offer advice. We have a limit of two items per person, please. And then lastly, the organizers of this repair cafe and the repair coaches are not liable for any damage or loss resulting from the work performed at the repair cafe. Good, yeah. This Mm -hmm. is an all volunteer community service project. Thank you for coming. Wow. Yeah. And it's such an important reminder that that it's volunteers. Um, So maybe after after you walk me through the rest of the space, um, maybe tell me a little bit about where these volunteers come from. (laughs) I'm happy to do that. Sure. Okay. so then when you get into the the room itself, it's important to have really good lighting and even floor. You need running water. You need electrical outlets. So you've got tables set up about six foot by three foot tables, usually two coaches per table. And then the there's a an area where chairs are set up for the people who are waiting for repairs. And part of the welcoming team, they do traffic control. As John said, um, they'll, they'll assess what you need fixed. If you bring in a sweater and a lamp, they'll look at which line is the least congested and send you to one or the other. Mm-hmm. And then you sit down and you work with the coach. And usually it's about 20 minutes or so per repair so that you can serve everyone it's based on first come first serve if we're not crowded and a repair takes longer that's okay but if we've got a a lot of people waiting it tends to be something that will tell you if it needs we need more time and you have other options but not that day so the room is set up in a way that there's good traffic flow and also in the back of the room is a snacks table. It's called a repair cafe because there are usually beverages and snacks donated Ooh. by people, often the people who do the repairs. Wow. You'd be surprised how many of them can, can bake and they're really good. <laughs> or we get a lot of kids involved who like to um, who like to bake, maybe the parent volunteers or their parent comes every time to bring something to be repaired. We've got a uh, 13-year-old girl who brings... Um, usually something hot from the oven with, with freshly whipped cream for it. <laughs> and the pear cafe aspect of it, uh, Peter Mui with the Fix-It Clinic, I believe he told you, John, that you needed to have really good pizza to make sure that the volunteers were kept happy. <laughs> yeah, well, Peter said, and this is very early on, uh, he said, you know, keeping your repair coaches, your volunteers with skills, it will be very important. They are your linchpin. Mm-hmm. And he said, pizza is going to be key. <laughs> we have a cake policy at the museum where I work, where mm-hmm. we have to yeah. include cake. <laughs> it's great. Well, and I'll say, you know, at our at my repair cafe, we have you know uh, two or three card tables set up, and it, and you know we really do kind of create a, a small cafe atmosphere, and it's mm-hmm. fun to do. That's nice. And also part of the the cafe notion and part of the repair cafe setup, um, 
we work with our local food pantry, as does many uh, repair cafes, and the organizer of the food pantry brings two big plastic tubs each time, and we encourage people when we promote the repair cafe with a list of tasks that we're going to be able to offer that day, the list of services, to bring uh, a non-perishable food yes. item to donate to the yeah. repair cafe. Also, many repair cafes like ours and John's will also have special events. We've had the uh, nurses from the local hospital come and do um, cholesterol um, training and offer at health screening and offer healthy snacks. And in, in addition to the basic categories, which are um, small electrics like lamps, that's the most popular item brought into wow. repair across the country. In <laughs> Europe, it's a coffee maker, but in the U.S., it's lamps. Wow. Uh, fact, cleaners, clocks digital devices we have a knife scissor and tool sharpening table oh, great. we have hand mending we have darning we have repairs made by uh, with a sewing machine we even have a leather expert who fixes uh, baseball gloves wow soft toys jewelry light scale wooden furniture if you can bring it through the door unless it's a, a gas powered item which is noisy and smelly and, and loud those are the basic categories, but John's Repair Cafe has some very interesting additional categories. Well, um, two then I'll point to. One is photo restoration. And Ooh. this is a, you know, a, a guy who um, a career engineer, and he has the software and the hardware to take a faded or damaged photograph and um, basically Photoshop it, return it to just beautiful appearance and then print it out or, or send you with the, the digital file. And I will tell you, just imagine the memories that are preserved mm. uh, through that kind of repair. Mm -hmm. uh, another great category is um, in the Catskills, which is uh, world renowned for fly fishing, and the repair cafes in the Catskills offer repairs of fishing tackle and fishing reels. And, you know, that is That's really great. important in that part of the country. And then the third one is uh, yet body repair. So we have licensed New York State licensed massage therapists hmm. who offer 10 to 15 minute chair massages. Wow. And awesome. also soul repair. Oh, yes. Well, this is called the listening corner. And it is indeed offered by a woman who is a licensed um, uh, psychologist. And basically her idea is that being listened to is a reparative act. Wow. Oh, my and gosh. Speaking of being listened to, there is another repair cafe, I think the one run by Melissa Everett, John, where they have a Spanish speaker who works with uh, people to help fill out Spanish-speaking uh, people who need help filling out uh, forms and applications and school wow. records. Oh, that's amazing. Well, it's true. Yeah, having having a bilingual uh, capability or aspect to your repair cafe is a very good thing. What a comprehensive list. Like, literally anything that needs repairing can happen at something like a repair cafe. Um, oh, and then there's the kids taking a part table. Yes, I love that idea. Tell me about that. Well, we... Ours usually serves kids up from age about 3 to 12, and it's staffed by a, a man and, and his two sons, who are now 8 and 6, I think. We have a process when, when you bring in, like, your uh, – I remember the one that was a hairdryer that when you turned it on, it smelled bad and smoked. And our guys diagnosed it as beyond repair. 
and the woman said, "Okay, well, where's the recycling uh, box?" And they said, "Oh, don't take, don't take it there. Take it over to the repair cafe. The kids take it apart table and ask Jim if it's safe for the kids to take it apart." And we have an adult who sits with the kids, and we've got little tiny tools just their size. <laughs> and he explains, he cuts the plug off of anything first, so nobody can get hurt. But he actually walks them through. This is what a screwdriver is for. This is how you know what type of screwdriver for what type of screw. So the kids are playing, but they're also learning something. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. My kid would love that. He's two, and he would just like drool over yeah. all those tools. The kids, the kids just hunker down, and they're there for the longest time. Uh, and it's just so important that families come to repair cafes. And wow. the kids take it apart table is one big reason that families do come. That is and they volunteer, so cool. too. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, yeah. Where do your volunteers come from? How do you find wow. people to help at your different cafes? Well, the first thing to say about that is those people are in every community. Yeah. If you think for a moment that there aren't skilled people uh, living in, in your neighborhoods, then you, you need to go out and meet more people. <laughs> the skills are there. And, and there are so many people who are just delighted to be asked because their spirit of generosity and you know the fact is is you know people do like to show what they know mm-hmm. if you've got skills it's really a, a pleasure to be able to to show it and 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 pass it on so one of our purposes certainly is to honor the people who have these skills and give them a place to demonstrate their skills and pass them on when I'm asked, well, how do, how do I get one of these in my town and where do you find the people? I always say, look for busy people who are already volunteering someplace else because the idea of giving back is, is in them. And many people are, who volunteer are retired. Many are employed. And I made a list of the kinds of people who are volunteers based on the information I got back. It's astonishing. It's every skill set imaginable. Artists, attorneys, authors, bakers, beekeepers, locksmiths, homemakers, firemen, electricians, nurses, pastors, plumbers, police investigators, real (laughs) estate agents, tool and die makers, town board members, basically anybody, everybody, and you. We, we did write this book because we want to encourage and, as I say, inspire people everywhere to think about how they might, you know, set up a repair event and repair pro- program in their town. And my goodness, you know, finding the people who will help you out in this is really it's classic networking. It's, you know, who knows somebody who knows somebody who. Mm-hmm. Wow. And oh, again, it's all about um that community resiliency. Have you found that communities that have had a repair cafe for some time just feel (laughs) more resilient? Oh, I think so. Because one of the hallmarks of resiliency is knowing who you can turn to in times of need. Yes, exactly. To have connections and networks of, of people or even being able to approach the repair cafe in your town or the nearest one to you and be like, do you know somebody who knows how to do this? Um, and and being able to just rely on other people around us. Um, and one of, the, one of the most natural partners, one of the first partners that you should consider in starting a repair cafe in your town is your library. Uh, Librarians have been champions of repair cafe. It is exactly what they love to bring to their programming. It is hands-on learning. It is intergenerational. It brings people into the library who maybe haven't been there in a while. So go to your library kind of almost as a first stop and say, this is what we have in mind. 
Would you like to host it? Would you like to be part of it in some way? So just to wrap up, when will your book be published? Did it already get published? October 27th, yesterday. Ah, yesterday. This is our publication week. Indeed it is. (laughs) Congratulations. That's very, very exciting. Yeah, and Elspeth, um, our book, uh, Repair Revolution, How Fixers Are Transforming the Throwaway Culture, was printed on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, printed printed in Canada, I might add. (laughs) Uh, And our publisher, New World Library, is a gold-certified, environmentally responsible publisher. And we are very happy about that. Also, just to say, our book is published in a paper trade edition. It's beautiful. We are so happy with the design and the manufacture of it. Uh, But it is in paperback. It is not a hardcover, and so it is very affordable. And, uh, you know, we want our book to be used and shared and passed around and underlined and dog-eared. We wanted this book to be accessible to everybody. That's wonderful. Uh, It's also available as an e-book or no? It is. Great. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's the version that I think I have, so... (laughs) Uh, I think there are 18 photographs and 15 illustrations and um, Mm. lots and lots of resources for starting a repair cafe. As I say, how do I get one of these in my town? All of that is in this book. That's so good. And there's also a list of curated um, sources by the coaches if you want to learn to do something during a time when you can't get to a repair cafe, as in now, there is their best places where they go to research it online and then we've got a whole adventures and repair chapter about how do you do something simple like uh, how do you fix a broken zipper often it's you don't need to replace the zipper at all it's the slider how to repair a torn teddy bear how do you uh, fix a sewing machine how do you patch a hole so there's information you can use right now because so many people are at home realizing there's there's no place else to go to get this fixed mm-hmm. when we've got sources for you there in the book too. That's wonderful. And I was going to ask for a, a bit of a, a takeaway, like how to get started in, in repairing things yourself. But I feel like that answers it to, um, to check out the book if you're able to and or look at your local library for it very soon, as soon as it uh, can be out on the shelves. Well, go go to your local librarian and say, hey, we, we learned about this book. And, uh, yeah, request and, and it. Exactly. We think you ought to have it on your shelf. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah, just start um, looking at the things that are beloved to you and your home that you know you you're hanging on to because you just you don't want to part with them because they just need a little repair and you know somebody knows how to do that somewhere certainly. So um, yeah, start to think about uh, your right to repair things and how it doesn't all have to be a throwaway culture that we live in. Thank you both of you for being on the podcast today and telling us so much about um, your passion for repairing not just things but for community and helping people's relationships and and all of these things. I think that the work that you're doing is fantastic uh, and I'm really excited to share this book with people. Thank Thank you you for having us. And the one thing we didn't say about the whole repair revolution, it's fun. It's really fun. People who become coaches at the repair cafe often will bring a friend or a spouse who then gets addicted to doing repairs too. (laughs) That's so fun. You might think you might think that the comment people would most often, you know, come up with about their repair cafe experiences, oh, I got it fixed, or oh, it was free. But in fact, I will tell you hands down, what they say most often is, 
it was fun. Oh, I'm so glad. That's so wonderful. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you want to hear more from John and Elizabeth, you can find them at Repair Cafe HB, as in Hudson Valley, repaircafehb.org, or follow at Repair Cafe HB um, as just one of the ways that you can reach them. You can also order a copy of their book or buy the ebook through their website, so check it out. I highly recommend it. And may 2021 be the year of repair, not just of our things, but for the whole world and the environment. If you enjoyed today's episode, you might also enjoy episode 40 with the Buy Nothing Project and episode 44, Mend Everything. You will likely also enjoy episode 113 coming up in a couple of weeks with textile artist Kate Ward about mindful mending and sashiko stitching. So keep an ear out for that in the coming weeks. If you'd like to be in touch, I'd love to hear from you. Send me an email at practicallyzeroways at gmail.com or message me on Instagram or Facebook at practicallyzeroweispod. You can support the show over at coffee.com Elspeth Callahan. Link is in the show notes and you can leave me a rating or review right in app while you're listening to me ramble on at the end here. All of these things help keep the show going and help it to be seen by people looking for this kind of content. That's all from me this week. I hope you're going outside sending kind and peaceful vibes out into the world and spreading your wealth of love and talent to those around you. Have a great week everyone and talk to you soon.